This is audio from a filmed meeting with a wildlife trafficker code-named Mona. Mona is a poised young South Asian man dressed in a light blue polo shirt. Across from him is a potential buyer who wants to sell rare turtles and tortoises to the pet trade in Hong Kong. Mona tells his new customer he has endangered Hamilton tortoises available from India. The customer asks him if he knows people at the airport. Mona nods yes and says he can run the contraband through customs in India and Malaysia and has a whole network ready to facilitate the transfer. There's just one problem. This buyer is actually an operative from the Wildlife Justice Commission. The meeting was filmed, his network uncovered, and Mona was arrested in 2017. Mona is just one character in a story of kingpins, corruption, and terrible international crimes of wildlife trafficking that crosses continents. This is a story of criminals threatening whole species and destabilizing societies. But mostly, this is the story of people who are trying and succeeding to bring them to justice. This is Operation Dragon. Operation Dragon is a podcast from the Wildlife Justice Commission and is part of the series Wildlife Kingpin. I'm Jonathan Gruber, and this is part one. Low risk, high reward. My name is Stephen Carmody. My position is Director of Programs at the WJC. At that time, I was the Chief of Investigation, so basically in charge of the operation. The operation Steve Carmody was in charge of back in 2016 was, indeed, Operation Dragon. And Steve is very much in charge. He's an imposing presence. And prior to joining the Wildlife Justice Commission, he spent many years in law enforcement in Australia before ending up at the United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime, training law enforcement in advanced investigative methodologies, including drug and wildlife seizures with countries in Southeast Asia. Pretty good prep for an operation aimed at arresting turtle traffickers. Speaking of which, why turtles? So there's two types of wildlife crime generally. One is what we call collectors, people who want to have a particular pet or a particular type of reptile or bird for the purpose of collecting them. And they'll have 50 or 100 different types of reptiles or birds, depending on what speciality is. And then we look at the traffickers, the traders, those that move huge quantities of wildlife for monetary gain. They're feeding a market. And like anything, supply and demand puts a price tag on some of these. So we see some of the turtles and tortoises fetching 250 US per head. And when you're selling a 1,000 of them, that's a fairly attractive business opportunity. Where is the demand? Look, for reptiles and birds, in particular in relation to Operation Dragon, turtles and tortoises, the demand is primarily Hong Kong, China, the US and Europe. People want these things for pets. You know, There's a huge demand for these types of animals. Many of the cases that were presented to us were turtle seizures, and most of the seizures failed to result in an arrest. So we saw thousands and thousands of turtles being seized, but no suspects being arrested. Plenty of seizures, but no arrests. And it was the lack of arrests, the lack of accountability for not just the everyday traffickers, but the bosses, the kingpins, 
that led to the creation of the Wildlife Justice Commission. The Wildlife Justice Commission was created to fill a lacuna in the accountability for massive crimes being committed against our biodiversity and our wildlife in particular. This is Olivia Svack-Goldman. She's been the executive director of the Wildlife Justice Commission since 2016. And by a lacuna, she means the anti-trafficking laws were all there. And every now and again, some low-level poachers would get arrested. But the real bad guys, the kingpins, were operating with impunity. In the Netherlands, there are all these courts and tribunals about international justice and holding accountable those most responsible for the gravest crimes. WWF of the Netherlands, together with Peace Parks, thought that there was room to have a kind of accountability mechanism to address wildlife crime, the fourth largest transnational organized crime. So they went to the Dutch Postcode Lottery, and as part of a bigger project, part of the Dream Fund, they, they included the idea of establishing an accountability mechanism for wildlife crime. I'd been doing international criminal law and laws of war for about 25 years. War crimes, genocide crimes against humanity are critically important to address. And I felt like I'd given it in my best shot, and I wanted to be a little closer to the ground, but I still wanted to work on issues that I felt were solvable and that had a big impact. And wildlife crime seemed to me like the perfect opportunity to do that do investigative work, to come up with cases, to work with governments to bring those cases, and to hold those governments to account if they failed to bring the cases of the highest level criminal. We have the rules and regulations in place, and it needed just that accountability mechanism to ensure that governments were living up to those obligations. So you wanted to scare the traffickers? It's about profit. It's about a scenario where it's low risk, high reward. So I thought if we could shift that to raise the risk of being held accountable, and lower the reward, these criminals would go into something else, and therefore we would have a little bit of breathing room for our endangered species. Make it not worth it. Make it not worth it, yes. Why does it matter to you? I want my grandkids to be able to see a rhino and a helmeted hornbill and a shark. So that's important to me on a personal level. I really can't abide by when we set up these rules to protect the innocent in society, whether that's children in armed conflict or the helmeted hornbill, and that we don't live up to what we've set ourselves as a requirement. So it seemed to me that we had an obligation to do this. And then, of course, there's a bigger picture. What are the implications of this trafficking? So it's the biodiversity loss, which is just extreme. We're at risk of losing up to a million species in the coming 10 years, and wildlife crime is one of the causes of that. The corruption that just devastates the belief of citizens in their societies and the rule of law, I find that just something that I wouldn't be comfortable not doing something about. It's a global problem, and I felt like I wanted to play a role in helping to do something about it. Because? Because they shouldn't get away with it. Because we will lose our biodiversity, because we're losing species, because of the devastation that it causes. They had another reason to get the big guys. The Wildlife Justice Commission was a new organization and had everything to prove. So they needed a big win. Typical conservation action on wildlife trade is anti-poaching. If you catch a poacher, there'll be 10 or 100 other ones that replace him. So it doesn't really break up the chain. It doesn't really change the system. This is Christian van der Hoeven. Christian is a 53-year-old Dutch biologist who works for the World Wildlife Fund's Netherlands office. I met him at his home in Amsterdam, filled with cameras and little skulls. He, like Olivia, wanted to go after the traffickers in a way that would really make a difference. 
we call the kingpins. If you want to really change it, you need to get the bosses. But there was nothing like that happening at the time. So we had this wild idea that we could set up a, a tribunal for wildlife crime in The Hague, of course, because that's uh, the city of peace and uh, justice. We explored the idea and talked with different organizations whether we could do that. And that's how we started this whole discussion with the Wildlife Justice Commission. A lot was at stake for us in this investigation because it was the first time we were focusing on live pet trade and turtles and tortoises and things that not everybody cared about. And we didn't have a reputation that we could rely on. We had donors that were relatively new that were seeing what we could do. We had governments that didn't necessarily know us, didn't understand what we were capable of. So this was an opportunity to present and show what we were capable of. This was your credibility to establish or destroy. Yes. This was an opportunity for us to see if our theory of going after those most impactful offenders, if one, we could actually do it, and two, if it would have the type of impact that we thought it would. So for the Wildlife Justice Commission, having a real impact on the illegal turtle trade was sink or swim. They were the new guys on the block with a new idea, but... You know, there are a lot of endangered species out there. Bigger, sexier wildlife like rhinos and elephants. What's so special about, you know, turtles? I had actually a colleague who worked for an organization in Malaysia, and he had been working in the wildlife trade for 20 years, and he gave me a presentation which blew me away with the images and the numbers that he gave. At that time, I was like... I don't understand that something is not happening on this. Why don't you describe some of these animals to me? Yeah, so for the tortoises, they are known for their beautiful shells. For example, you've got the radiated tortoise, which is beautifully, like has stars on the shell, which is so beautiful to see. And you've got the black spotted tortoise, which has a, a pattern on the head, which is white, black, white, black, white, black. And you've got the star tortoise, which is an, another one, which has an intricate pattern on its back, on its shell, which is beautiful, which I can imagine people love very much. And then you've got the freshwater turtles, always very complicated names, the red-roofed freshwater turtle. And they've got long necks, they stick out, they've got soft shells, and they're much appreciated because they're often very rare and specific. Now, beyond their beauty and their simple right to exist, why do these turtles matter? First of all, every species on Earth has a role in the ecosystem. And if you remove them by trading them up to extinction, then the system might collapse if you remove enough of it. I always compare it with the Jenga game. You can remove a block, you can move three, five, six, but at a certain moment it will collapse and you cannot build it again. The second thing, the role can be defined in whatever way they occupy this niche. And for example, tortoises, they move around and spread the seeds through their feces and droppings. The freshwater turtles, they clean up the freshwater environment by scavenging. So that's also a role they have. And they move around and they change the environment by making paths and eating plants and stuff like that. Every species has its role in the ecosystem. So what happens if you remove these animals? If you remove them, that changes the environment and changes the system. And that might catalyze a further decline in the system itself, the resilience of it. So how important was it to you that something like Operation Dragon happen? Those traders would stop at nothing. As long as they have their species, they will go on, they will go on until there's nothing and they'll change to a different species. There are species that are going extinct already or have gone extinct because of trade, yeah. And how endangered are they right now? Some of them are really critically endangered, especially, for example, in Madagascar, where there are only a couple of tens left, 70, 80, and they have a measure to try to prevent them being caught by, for example, paint big numbers on the shells so that they are not interesting anymore for the trade. So they mutilate the beauty of the shell so that they're not interesting. Exactly. 
So I didn't want us to only be focused on the rhinos and the elephants. I thought it was really important to show the variety of the species that are being subjected to this kind of trafficking. Yeah, but Olivia, turtles, who cares? Everybody should care about the turtles. The turtles and tortoises are super important. Plus, it's a symbol for all the little guys out there. Everybody cares about the rhino. Who cares about the turtles? They should care about the turtles. They're an important part of our biodiversity, and they're just as important that they stay thriving and there for the next generation as any other species. Our goal was to go after those high-level criminals that are orchestrating the trade. Stop focusing solely on the low-level individuals and the couriers, but to really figure out who are those key individuals that are making the decisions and are making the money and go after them so that they'll no longer want to be engaged in this kind of trafficking. So the Wildlife Justice Commission was set up to go after the big guys to make systemic changes at the root rather than just paring back the branches. And they do this not by making arrests themselves because they can't do that. They're not the cops. They find out who done it and how they did it and even when they did it. And then they share it with the local authorities. But the local authorities aren't always convinced enforcing the law is worth doing, at least not at first. What it was were people that were doing crime that was not recognized as crime by law enforcement and particularly by the courts. That's Steve Carmody again. He knew from previous investigations that the traffickers had already been run out of Thailand. This forced the traffickers to look for new routes to get their product to market. But Steve and his team were one step ahead, moving to the most logical location as the criminals shifted their business. One of the main factors for them is what they called settings, or one of the main issues was to identify settings. And settings were corrupt offices within airports where they could move commodities. So what was happening is that you had a number of airports in India that were susceptible to this sort of practice. So there were corrupt officers there that were facilitating the movement. But you also had Bangladesh, because in India, the law enforcement was actually quite effective. Often what would happen is these turtles would be collected throughout rural India. It would be shipped overland or transported overland by train or by truck. And then it would be collected and it would go overland through the porous border between India and Bangladesh. Now, that may be by truck or by boat. Why Bangladesh? They had connections at the airport or they had settings. That's at the airport in Dhaka in the capital? Yeah. It was quite easy for these guys to get it out through Dhaka and through a number of airports in India. And it was cheaper for them to fly it from Bangladesh to Malaysia and then ship overland to Thailand than to actually fly it directly into Thailand. They had corrupt connections in Thailand. There were also some very good operatives in Thailand, law enforcement, customs and police, who were onto these networks. So they started losing shipments. But all they were losing really were couriers and product. It wasn't really hurting them because there was no reaching back into India. So these networks shifted and started going through Malaysia. And that created an opportunity for us because we could bring people in and then indicate that we could move it across the border. So Steve and his team decided to set up shop in Malaysia and pose as buyers with fake settings. This means getting the Malaysian authorities on board so they could make arrests. One of the hardest things is firstly to find someone in law enforcement that will work with you. And the next part is actually getting them to develop trust in you. 
right? The fact that we come from a law enforcement background ourselves makes it a lot easier because you're talking the same language. You understand the constraints that they're working under. So you went to Malaysian law enforcement and you approached me. You said, we're looking at this particular illegal network. Through a contact in law enforcement, I was introduced to a, a Malaysian law enforcement officer and he was in Thailand on holidays with his family. I made a phone call. We met up for coffee and introduced myself. And he was very upfront. Yeah, we're happy to do work, but also laid out what the parameters were, told us how the law worked. He was a great guy. We'd been talking about targets, and he was aware of who these targets were because they'd come up on his radar as well. The Malaysian authorities were on board, as was Indian law enforcement. They started tracking the traffickers along the whole supply chain, country to country, as the turtles and tortoises made their way to Kuala Lumpur. Malaysia was seen as a soft spot where very few arrests were made. So the traffickers got sloppy. So what we were seeing that was a high reward, low risk enterprise for these guys. And their tradecraft showed that their lack of surveillance awareness, the lack of law enforcement methodologies, it made it pretty easy for us to get onto these networks and penetrate through them very quickly. And basically we found two outstanding investigators, one in Malaysia and one in, in India. And we're able to bring those together and, and work collectively and collaborate. Working collectively meant convincing traffickers they had a Malaysian setting ready to go to get them to try to smuggle product, as they call it, from India through Kuala Lumpur and then on to Thailand to the final destination, Hong Kong. We were pretending to be established traffickers in Malaysia and that we had connections into Thailand. And you understood how that worked. So that was easy for you to pretend to be. Absolutely. So it mirrors the drug trade in respect to how commodities move through that illicit supply chain. And one of the things that helped us is we always tried to push them down on price so that, that we were simulating someone who was trying to make more money by reducing what their profit margin was to increase ours. Because that's exactly what a, what a criminal would do and doing what a criminal would do, they started in Bangkok at an outdoor market where protected species were sold right out in the open. We have a, a market called Jatatrak Market in Bangkok where lots of birds, reptiles, turtles, tortoises, and mammals are being sold. And many of these are protected under the, the CITES Convention. So CITES is an international convention that was created to prevent or monitor and regulate the trade in endangered species. You could literally walk in there and buy one. There was no law to prevent you from doing this. But for us, that's the retail end. We wanted to get through that to the people that were supplying that market or above. And then we just quickly got through the first layer at the markets and were given the phone number. How does that work exactly? So they walk up to somebody selling one of your protected turtles. And yep. then what do they say? We want a thousand of them. So then they go, we can't do a thousand. And then we basically say, can you put us in contact with someone that can? They gave us a phone number and we made a call on that number and we arranged a meeting with a Indian national in Bangkok. Here is typically how such a meeting goes. This is audio from a different undercover operation. Wildlife Justice Commission operatives are meeting with a trafficker identified as Manny in Bangkok. He claims to have 1,100 kilograms of vulnerable spotted pond turtles and Indian star tortoises. According to him, smuggling turtles to Malaysia is very easy. So 
Back at the start of Operation Dragon, Steve's operatives are setting up their meeting with the traffickers they reach through the Bangkok market. We had a number of operatives on the ground. We had a surveillance team with them. So every time we deploy, we have a team that protects the operative. Where would you make the appointment? In a public place. Such as? There's nothing sexy about it. It's just we meet in a coffee shop, we have a coffee, we have a discussion. We agree on quantities and prices. We push back on prices. They want to see that we exist. They want to see that we know what we're talking about. We talked about logistics and what they could and couldn't provide and how often they could provide it. And that was pretty well it. To entice their new customers, the traffickers would send them videos via WhatsApp like this one. There's South Asian music playing in the background, and the basket is full of dozens of little adult black-spotted turtles crawling over each other. There's a newspaper in the frame showing the date to prove the turtles are alive and well. The contraband wildlife were being offered by someone codenamed Mona. Remember the young man in the blue shirt at the start of the show? Mona was a so-called level four kingpin. That's four out of five. And he quickly became the main target of Operation Dragon. Mona worked hard to conceal his real identity, using several aliases and disguises, and unlike a lot of his colleagues, he had no social media presence. Mona was smart. Mona was careful. And Mona's network was about to step into a well-laid trap. And just how the Wildlife Justice Commission rolled up Mona's crew and brought him to justice is the story of the next episode of Operation Dragon, entitled The Trap is Sprung. Want to get a head start on next week's episode? Just go to wildlifejustice.org and search for Dragon Report. Here you'll find a detailed report on everything in today's show, plus mugshots of the perps, and there are links to videos of the arrests and much more in the show notes. And Operation Dragon is just one of the many successful Wildlife Justice Commission investigations, including our first podcast series, Wildlife Kingpin, The Rise and Fall of Anam. Find out more at wildlifejustice.org, where you can also donate by clicking on the Donate button. It's for them, for you, for me, for all of us. That's at wildlifejustice.org. Join us. From the Wildlife Justice Commission, this was Operation Dragon from our series, Wildlife Kingpin. I'm Jonathan Gruber. Thank you for listening. Listening.